Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. This evening we are going to begin our study in the book of Isaiah. May I share, Conrad and Marilyn, what you told me so that we can use this to kind of set the expectation for this study? Conrad said that in the apartment building where he used to be, that there was a group that had a small Bible study, and he went in there, and the the person who was leading the study decided to teach the book of Isaiah, and his approach was to say, everybody go home and read it. Come back next week and tell us what you think of it. Okay, that will not be the approach we're taking here. I am not going to be asking you what you think of it, how it affects you, or how you feel about it. Instead, we're going to be looking at the cold, hard facts that we find in the book. The book of Isaiah is really one of the most beloved books in the Bible. I guess it's sort of to my shame that it took me this many years to get around to teaching through it verse by verse. But really, in order to understand Isaiah, we kind of needed all the background and history that we've been working on for all these years. We understand here at GCA some of the Old Testament history of Israel, so it's going to be easier to plug Isaiah into his historic standpoint. And we also understand a proper Israelology, and that makes it easier for us to teach through books like the book of Hebrews or the book of James or any of the Old Testament prophets because we are not going to find ourselves objecting to some of the things that we find written in the book of Isaiah when it comes to Israelology. And we here at GCA are also very comfortable with eschatology. And a great deal of the book of Isaiah is very eschatological. And eschatological to a degree where if you just treat it fairly, stand toe-to-toe with it, read it at face value, it really dictates its own eschatological view. And it is difficult to read the book of Isaiah from any other than a premillennial view. We will discover that as we continue going through it. It's got a lot of literary beauty to it. The language is almost poetic in many different areas, but it's also really descriptive in the terminology that it chooses to use. There are frightening passages in Isaiah, and there are absolutely beautiful passages in Isaiah, some of which we just know, some of which are just planted in our heads and in our collective memories, like Isaiah 53. The book of Isaiah is the first in our modern Bibles, it's the first of the 17 prophetic books. After you go through the law, the Pentateuch, and after you go through some of the history books, and then you get into the poetic books, you then bump into the prophets, and the first of those prophets is Isaiah. And that's not because he was first chronologically. 
Historically, he was not the first prophet that was sent to Israel, but he is first literarily because he really is the most comprehensive of the prophets. He really covers all the themes that the other prophets cover. But he also wrote one of the longest prophetic books simply by virtue of how long his career as a prophet was. Isaiah and Jeremiah have prominence in that area. But there are 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. Some people try to make some great to-do out of the fact that there are 66 books in the Bible and 66 chapters in Isaiah, but that is really just coincidental. I mean, the fact that Isaiah didn't include chapters to begin with means that the chapter headings are not inspired and were obviously not part of the original writing. So you can't make too much of the fact that there are 66 chapters, but it is a very long book. As a consequence, last night at the end of men's meeting, Micah had the unmitigated audacity, I mean the almost incomprehensible nerve, to ask me how long I thought we'd be in Isaiah. And I said to him, you know, even if we do a chapter a week, which is not at all likely, because there are going to be so many additional topics and rabbit trails that we're going to have to chase as we go through the book, but even if it were a chapter a week, that's 66 weeks, that's at least a year. And so we will be in Isaiah for a good long while on Wednesday nights. Hopefully, we'll be in Isaiah until Jesus comes. If we finish Isaiah and we're still here, I will just simply be deeply disappointed. <laughs> so, so let's talk a little bit about the book of Isaiah, because in the late 1800s, the liberal critics of the Bible introduced the concept that the book of Isaiah may have been written in two different portions by two different authors. I just want to dispel that for any folks out there listening who have been convinced of that notion. The reality is that the Jewish tradition has always been that Isaiah had only one author. The entire book was from one man. And then that was validated in the Dead Sea Scrolls. The very fact that the Dead Sea Scrolls included a complete copy of the book of Isaiah points to its acceptance as one whole book by one whole author by the Qumran community in the second century BC. And then also the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament in the second century BC, gives no indication at all that the book of Isaiah is anything other than a single book. And then the New Testament writers also assume that Isaiah was the author of the entire book because pretty much every portion of the book from beginning to end is quoted and referenced in the New Testament and always with the reference to Isaiah, as the prophet Isaiah said, as the prophet Isaiah said. So you find those quotes from the beginning of Isaiah and you find those quotes at the end of Isaiah. And so the New Testament community also believed that Isaiah was written, prophesied by one single prophet. The name Isaiah is probably more properly pronounced Isaiah, but the name Isaiah 
has that yah sound at the end of it in the Hebrew language, words that end with yah, like hallelujah, is a reference to Yahweh. It's a reference to God. It's a name for God. The same way that El is a name for God at the end of names like Daniel or Mikael. The same thing when you see Yah at the end of a name. It is a reference directly to God, to Yahweh. And so the name Isaiah means Yahweh is salvation. And that, ironically enough, becomes one of the themes of the book of Isaiah. That salvation is of the Lord. That God himself has to be the author of salvation. Otherwise, there is no salvation. And then the means of that salvation is described in great detail and at length in Isaiah's prophecies. Now, when was the book written? How do we plug this into the history of Israel? Well, you know that Israel was separated from the northern and southern kingdoms. Uh, You know that Solomon lost the kingdom, but for sake of David, God said that he wasn't going to separate the northern and southern kingdoms until the son of Solomon came into his kingship. Well, then those two nations lasted for a while. The northern kingdom had a series of kings, as did the southern kingdom, It is really in the latter days of the northern kingdom's existence, just before Sennacherib came down with Assyria and conquered the northern tribes and took them into captivity, the last four kings leading up to that event is the period of time that we're talking about, and I'll give you some dates in a moment. So... Isaiah is a preacher and a prophet to the southern kingdom. As the northern kingdom goes into captivity in Assyria, the southern kings, especially Hezekiah, becomes very afraid, becomes very concerned, because look what's happened to the northern kingdom. It's only a matter of time before Sennacherib comes down on us, and Isaiah spent a great deal of time prophesying not only God's protection for Judah, but instructing the kings how they should behave in order to have God help them, protect them, preserve them. Isaiah helped to prevent Judah's captivity as a result and their exile to Assyria. And you can really read about that, and we will as we're going through the book. I've got a lot of time, despite what Micah might think. I've got a lot of time yet, and we will look at 2 Kings. We're going to look at 2 Chronicles And those both have references to Isaiah and to Isaiah dealing with especially Hezekiah. So we will look at that as well. But Isaiah's guidance to Hezekiah is actually toward the end of his prophetic ministry. His prophetic ministry actually began 47 years earlier during the reign of King Uzziah, and you're going to see that in Isaiah 6. We all kind of know that phrase. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw God high and lifted up. So the span of Isaiah's prophetic ministry runs over the course of several different kings, and Isaiah has access to the royal court. And that's how come he's able to speak directly to the kings. According to tradition, 
and I will point out this is just tradition. You can't find this anywhere in history, and yet for some reason it permeates so many commentaries. But according to tradition, Isaiah would have been the cousin of King Uzziah, which would have been the reason that he had access to the courts of the kings. But I still want to point out that is just tradition, and there's no real evidence to support that. But he still had access to the kings. He had personal contact with at least two of Judah's kings. We're going to read about that. You're going to see it in Isaiah chapter 7 and chapter 38 and 39, where Isaiah has immediate access to the kings. Isaiah as a person was married. We're going to read about that in chapter 8. He had two sons, Shir Jashub and Maher Shalal Hashbaz, a name I am glad has fallen out of common use. So let me give you a handout here. Those of you who are actually here tonight get bonus prizes. You get a handout here. I will put this handout on my blog, pastorjimmick.com, so that the people listening on the internet have access to it. Really all it is is a demonstration of how often Isaiah is either quoted or directly referenced in the New Testament. Isaiah is actually mentioned by name 22 times in the New Testament, which is more than any other Old Testament prophet. That's how much credibility he had in the eyes of the New Testament authors. But then the handout that I just gave you are the places where Isaiah is quoted 55 times in the New Testament, which is why it took two pages to go through. I would also like to point out that as you go through these citations, many of them are going to be instantly familiar to you, like Matthew 1.23 quotes right from Isaiah, saying that a virgin is going to be with child, which comes right from Isaiah 7.14. And you will notice that that particular prophecy came true quite literally. As we continue through the book and through this study, you're going to hear me say this quite often. I want you to recognize that the prophecies in Isaiah that have already come to pass all came to pass in a very genuine, historic, literal sense. For instance, when Jesus closed the eyes and ears of people so they couldn't hear and open the eyes of others and stuff. That is a spiritual application that Jesus was performing, and yet he quite literally performed it. You understand the difference? So sometimes you're even going to see spiritual things like Isaiah 53, where you're going to read about the spiritual consequences of the death of Christ. But Christ also quite literally died, and those spiritual consequences quite literally came about. And so we will be reading and approaching the book of Isaiah with that literal reality in mind. Because people attempt far too often to say that the prophecies of Isaiah, and the prophecies, in fact, of all Old Testament prophets, may have come true in a literal sense during Jesus' day and during the first century church, but then they will say that any future prophecies that you find are going to come true in some kind of spiritual sense. 
I'm going to be arguing from the text that these prophecies have always come true in a literal sense. So then on what basis can we expect them to become spiritual later on? God already has demonstrated how these prophecies are going to come true. And so far, Isaiah has a really genuinely astounding batting average going. And what I mean by that is the amount of prophecy that he has predicted that is picked up in the New Testament and then satisfied. These prophecies have actually come to their fruition, and the New Testament writers say, this is because Isaiah predicted it. As Isaiah said, this is what Isaiah foretold. And so I expect that in the course of human history, in the course of time, as other prophecies from Isaiah come true, they are also going to come true in a very literal fashion. There's no reason to spiritualize what has already been demonstrated to be literal prophecy. We're not quite into Isaiah yet, so turn to the book of Luke for a moment. Turn to Luke 4, and we're just going to take a look at one of these places where Luke is cited or where Isaiah is cited in the New Testament. And the reason that we're going to look at this particular passage is because I want you to see the amount of credibility that Jesus gives to Isaiah. I also want you to see how Jesus says that the prophecy of Isaiah has come true, has been fulfilled at the moment that he was reading it. Because this becomes demonstrative of how we're going to approach all the prophecies in the book of Isaiah. We're going to follow the Jesus example. And by the way, that's pretty good credibility. If Jesus says, Isaiah knows what he's talking about, then I got to go with Isaiah knows what he's talking about. Let's start reading in Luke 4, verse 14. As Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, the news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in all the synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. That was very standard behavior, by the way. Somebody would read from the scripture. It would be various different men who would stand and read the scripture. There was a great emphasis on the scripture. I just want to point that out again. Jesus stood up to read, and he read from the scripture. Verse 17, and the book of the prophet of Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book, which may have been a scroll. He scrolled through the book, and he found the place where it was written. Now, he knew where it was going to be written. He knew where to find it in the book of Isaiah. He was so intimately familiar with the book of Isaiah as he was all the word of God. And so then he went particularly to this passage from Isaiah and he read, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to free those who are downtrodden and to proclaim 
the acceptable, says the King James. The NASB says the favorable year of the Lord. Verse 20, and he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed upon him because he went to that particular passage and instead of saying, Isaiah says, and then giving Isaiah the credibility for it, he started by stating the spirit of the Lord is on me. I'm the one who is the very habitation of the spirit of the Lord and he appointed me to go preach the gospel How do I know that that's the emphasis that he put on it? Because verse 21 says, while they were all staring at him, he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So he read from Isaiah, applied it to himself, showed that it was prophetic, and also said it's being fulfilled right here, right now, by the very fact that I'm here in your midst, doing the miracles that I'm doing, accomplishing the things that I'm accomplishing. I'm here on the planet to fulfill the things that Isaiah has already predicted about me. In other words, Jesus gives the book of Isaiah a tremendous amount of credibility. So now, if Jesus was willing to say that Isaiah had that level of credibility, what are we going to do when we come to the Israelological parts and the future for Israel? Because Isaiah has a lot to say. The whole book of Isaiah can kind of be summarized by saying he tells the people of Judah how depraved and sinful they are and how God's judgment looms over them But then he equally says, but because God is faithful and because God has made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there is this glorious kingdom coming for Israel. So then how are we going to approach that? Are we going to say, well, when Jesus was on the planet and he said, right now, this particular part of Isaiah is fulfilled in your hearing. It's actually established right now. And he said it very literally. It had spiritual implications. He was opening the eyes of the blind. He's preaching the gospel to the poor. Those are very spiritual things, but it was very literally happening at that moment. Jesus was actually literally doing it. So knowing the amount of references to Isaiah in the New Testament, knowing the number of times that New Testament authors make reference back to Isaiah's prophecies and knowing that Jesus himself took the prophecy of Isaiah very, very literally, then when we get to the Israel parts of Isaiah and the eschatology parts of Isaiah, we have to approach it the same way that Jesus did and the same way that the New Testament writers do, which is very straightforward and literal. So I will be treating Isaiah in a very face value approach, recognizing that the face value approach can also understand the spiritual implications of the things that are literally said. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. Isaiah contains a lot of just factual material about the society of Israel right around 700 B.C. 
because he's not only pointing out the shortcomings of the people, but he's also noting that God has a remnant of believers within Israel through whom he works. And of course, Paul picks that up in Romans 9 to 11 and starts talking about the remnant within Israel. And he cites Isaiah as part of that argument. Isaiah is introducing that notion that God has always preserved for himself people even within national Israel as they rebelled against God. Isaiah was actually calling the people of Judah back to a proper relationship with God. He was reminding the people who were alive as he was alive of their very sinful condition and what the consequences were of their sinful condition. God was going to judge the nation, but he was also eventually going to restore them back to their land. And Isaiah doesn't just make that up. He's saying the same thing that Moses said. Turn to Deuteronomy for just a moment. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 30, the first five verses, the Deuteronomical law, the restatement of the law by Moses to Israel, here's what they are told. So it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse. Notice that God knows and says through Moses, you're not going to do the law. I've given you the law with the promise of blessings, but you're not going to do it. I know that. So the curses are also going to come upon you. That's stated like a fact. There's not a condition placed on it where God says, I'm going to give you the blessings. And if you go bad, then I'm going to bring curses on you. Instead, he says, all these things are going to come upon you. The blessings and the curse, which I have set before you. And then you will call to mind in the nations where the Lord your God has banished you. And you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons. Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord God has scattered you. And if your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, From there, the Lord your God will gather you. And from there, he will bring you back. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed. And you shall possess it. And he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Okay, there's the promise from Moses. Isaiah is going to pick up that same idea, those same promises. And he's going to say that even though Israel, the northern tribes, are taken off into the Assyrian captivity, that's exactly what God promised when he laid out the law and said, you follow my law, I will bless you, but if you break my law, if you chase after other gods, if you intermingle with the other nations around you, well, then I'm going to scatter you among those nations. Isaiah is simply confirming what Moses has already said God was going to do. And God in his faithfulness is actually doing the very thing he said he was going to do. And Isaiah said, because God is faithful in scattering you, 
just like he said he was going to, that also demonstrates the faithfulness of God in regathering you and bringing you back to your land because that's also exactly what he said he was going to do. So these are the big thematic elements that we find in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah spoke more than any other prophet about the great kingdom into which Israel is going to enter at the second advent of the Messiah. Isaiah discussed the depths of Israel's sin, but then he turns around and talks about the height of God's glory and the coming kingdom. So he always preaches the faithfulness of God to his own word, even as he's telling Israel how depraved and how fallen they are before God and before God's righteous standard. And so I'm going to argue through this study that God in his faithfulness dispersed Israel because he said that was what he was going to do. But then equally, especially based on the fact that we can look at his historic faithfulness to his own word. We can look at the fact that God said, I'm going to scatter you, and then he scattered them. But then he repeatedly says, and I'm going to regather you a second time, and I'm going to bring you back here to this very land. Well, the fact that God has faithfully already done the first half of it means that he's going to faithfully do the second half of it. I think that's inescapable. I don't know how you say Okay, now when God was talking about the scattering part, he meant national Israel. But when he promised the gathering part, he meant the church of Jews and Gentiles. And some. that doesn't make sense to me. The same people group that he scattered is the same people group that he's going to gather because he says so. Because he says, I'm going to bring you back to the land that I gave your fathers. And that identifies them as the children of Israel. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that, my friends, is not the church. Make sense? Yes. Okay. All right, let me give you just a little bit of biographical information. I told you that we would look at a few dates and things. Starting right at verse 1 of Isaiah. There we made it. We're to verse 1. We may not get any further than verse 1 tonight, but Verse 1 tells us that Isaiah prophesied during the reigns of Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah, those four kings of Judah. The reigns of those kings, including their periods of co-regency, Uzziah was the king from 790 to 739 B.C. Jotham was king from 750 to 732 B.C., Ahaz from 735 to 715, and Hezekiah from 715 to 686. The very fact that Isaiah tells us in verse 1 that those are the kings who were king during his prophetic career give us a good idea how long his career was, and it works as sort of a date stamp so that we know exactly when Isaiah was prophesying because he's told us which kings were in charge. The year of Isaiah's death is technically unknown, but it was probably after Hezekiah's death in 686 B.C., probably during Manasseh's reign between 686 and 642, 
because we read in 2 Chronicles 32 that Isaiah did write a biography of sorts about King Hezekiah. You can read it there in 2 Chronicles where it says that the works of Hezekiah were written by Isaiah. So Isaiah's death would have occurred after Sennacherib's death. We read that in Isaiah 37, 38. And we know that Sennacherib died around 681 BC. So since Isaiah's ministry began sometime in Uzziah's reign, which is 790 to 739 BC, then Isaiah had to have ministered for at least 58 years, from at least 739 when Uzziah died in Isaiah 6.1 until 681 when Sennacherib died. We know that that time span is covered in the book of Isaiah. So that's 58 years. That's a long prophetic career. According to best traditional dating from the second century, Isaiah was actually martyred by King Manasseh. In fact, Justin Martyr, who was writing between 100 and 165 AD, wrote that Isaiah was sawed asunder with a saw, which is usually what you use to saw. If you're sawing, you use a saw. But in Hebrews 11.37, in that chapter of the Heroes of Faith, one of the tortures that the writer of Hebrews lists for the heroes of faith who died under various terrible ways, he actually mentions some were sawn asunder. And that may be a direct reference to what Isaiah went through. So these years in Israel's history were a time of great struggle politically and spiritually. The northern kingdom of Israel was deteriorating rapidly, politically, spiritually, militarily, and then they finally fall to the Assyrian Empire in 722 BC. The southern kingdom of Judah looked as though it was also going to collapse and fall to Assyria but it withstood the attack of Assyria. And it's during this political struggle and during this spiritual decline that Isaiah rises up there in Judah to deliver the message to the people of Judah. And his message was that they should trust God who had promised them this glorious kingdom. He had promised it through Moses. He had promised it through David. And Isaiah is just picking up that torch and running with it. Isaiah urged the nation not to rely on Egypt, not to rely on any other foreign powers. Nobody else was going to protect them. It was not going to be their political might. It was not going to be the dominance of their horses or how many fighting men they had. It was Yahweh himself who was going to be the only protection that they needed and the only protection who could ultimately be effective. Isaiah was aware, however, that Judah was destined for exile the same way that the northern tribes had been exiled. We can read in Deuteronomy 28, 49 to 50, or Deuteronomy 64, chapter 64 to chapter 67, all of that Deuteronomical prophetic material predicts that Judah is also going to fall because God sees the northern and the southern tribes as erring sisters who both went into apostasy And they are both going to ultimately be punished. 
And Isaiah recognizes that that is eventually going to happen. So his book is directed to two groups of people, really. And we need to kind of keep these two groups in mind. Those people who were alive during his time, who had strayed from their obligations that were given to them in the Mosaic Law, and then he was also writing to those of some future generation who were going to be in exile, but who had the promise that God was going to restore them, bring them back to their land, and give them a glorious kingdom. Isaiah was calling the first group back to holiness and obedience to God, and he was comforting the second group with the assurance that God was going to restore their nation, restore their land, he was going to establish his kingdom in peace and prosperity, and the theme to that group of people is the theme of comfort. When we get to that latter portion, starting at chapter 40 of Isaiah, you're going to see this theme of comfort come up over and over again. So Isaiah is a book of tremendous comfort, but Isaiah is also a book of gospel themes. We're going to keep bumping into things that we can't help but say, well, you know, the New Testament picks that up and says this about it. So you'll kind of want to hold on to that list that I have given you because you're going to see references time and time and time again as we go through Isaiah that are just going to resonate. They're just going to echo forward into the New Testament, and it's going to be impossible not to draw those connections. At the time that Isaiah was prophesying, he had a couple of other prophetic contemporaries. That was Hosea and Micah. Not that Micah, but Hosea and the prophet Micah were contemporary to Isaiah. And actually, there are all these parallels between both the messages and the vocabularies between Isaiah and Micah. So there's a lot of connection between those two books, connections that we may also have to go look at as we make our way through the book. Do you get the sense yet that it's going to take a while? Finally, Isaiah, and this is part of what I love about Isaiah. This is why I love reading Isaiah, not only the astounding amount of comfort and prophecy and eschatology that you can find, but Isaiah has such a high and lofty view of God. And of course, in chapter 6, he gets that glimpse of God. But then that glimpse of God seems to carry through everything else that he prophesies through the rest of his prophetic career. His view of God is always very lifted up, very sovereign, very separate from human beings, very high, very holy very different than we can ever think to be or expect to be here in this lifetime. He really makes the distinctions that, that I have quoted so often to you that he says, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are my ways above your ways, my thoughts above your thoughts. He just consistently places God on such a very high platform that I just really like reading about it because the more you know about a really, truly, genuinely sovereign God, the more comfortable you are with Isaiah. 
if you have a theology that diminishes God in order to make him more compatible with human reason, or if you reduce the glory of God in order to make him less frightening or to scale back the idea that he is a judge, then you're going to be really uncomfortable in Isaiah because Isaiah is going to keep representing this God that rubs up against your ideas and your traditions. But I would rather go with Isaiah's estimation of who God is and what God is like because Isaiah, unlike myself, actually saw God. And therefore, whatever he says about God, his first-hand witness testimony of who God is and what God's like. And you don't get better testimony than first-hand eyewitness testimony. The Lord is seen in this book as the initiator of the events of human history. All I'm really saying in that sentence is God is sovereign, and that's the way Isaiah, that's the way Isaiah sees him. And even as Isaiah sees the deportation of the northern kingdoms, even as he sees the troubles and the trials and the difficulties that are happening in the southern kingdom through these various kings, all of it falls under the umbrella of God is sovereign, God is in charge, God knows what he's doing, even in the midst of all this trouble. And that is one of the aspects of Isaiah that makes it a very, very contemporary book, especially given the days and the times that we're living in right now, where the world seems exceptionally crazy. Mm -hmm. It would be real easy to think, well, pandemonium now has its day. And it would be real easy to think, well, where is God in all this? As we go through Isaiah, you will see him repeatedly stating that God is right there in the middle of it. God is right there in charge of it. And the very fact that God predicted it in Israel's case, and then it actually came to be, is evidence in Isaiah's mind that God is just faithfully executing his word. So likewise, I have argued for the many years that I have said to you, cheer up, saints, it's going to get worse. For as long as we have read the Bible from a premillennial view and understood that things were going to start falling apart at some point, that there was going to be this glorious darkness before Christ comes back. And then we start seeing the world trending that way. We see the depravity of human beings come to the fore. We see the depravity of human beings on open display. They're no longer hiding their sinfulness. And we see society kind of falling apart around us, not just here in America, but all over the world, making us say, wow, the world is just kind of circling the drain at this point. Well, that is exactly what the Bible said. So even as I observe the world getting worse, the worsening of the world is validation of the Bible. Mm. And that's the same way that Isaiah treats it. God said he was going to do these things. Now he is doing these things. That is proof positive that God is sovereign over these things because he said he was going to do them. Now he is doing them. And therefore we can have hope and therefore we can have confidence because he also said a lot of other things that we can look forward to, a lot of other promises that we can look forward to and that there is this glorious end result coming and this glorious kingdom coming to Israel and this glorious heavenly destiny for all 
all those who belong to him. And because we can look at human history and see the activity of God and see the way that he has already exercised his own word, we can have full and complete confidence that he is going to exercise the entire rest of his word. You get it? I like Isaiah's approach. And that is also the approach that we've been trying to take here at GCA all these years. God is involved in the affairs of his own creation. And you're going to see that in the very first verses. Verse 2 starts out, Listen, O heavens, hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Notice that he isn't talking here to individual people. He's talking to the entirety of his creation. He can speak to everything because everything is his. He can hold everything accountable. He can even judge this planet for its sinfulness. He can burn it with fire and then make a new heaven and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. He has a first-person, one-on-one, communicative relationship with everything he's ever made. And that's a very high view of God. That's not just a God who is like us. None of us can do what Isaiah immediately says God does. God speaks to the heavens and the earth itself all the earth, everything in the earth, everyone on the earth, and the Lord speaks. So God is actually involved in the affairs of his entire creation, and Isaiah centered his theology and his book on God and the work that God is doing and will continue to do in this world. We'll call that the introduction, but let's see if we can get Just an introduction to these words, because listen, God starts right out in his first prophecy through Isaiah. He starts out by building his case against Israel. And he has a case. Mm -hmm. And he is holding them accountable. Because, as we have seen time and time and time again, in order to understand the really good news, you have to understand the bad news. And God approaches it the same way. He starts with, you're guilty, guilty, guilty. But not just guilty, he's also, I think, arguing, you're stupider than animals. You're dumber than brute beasts. That's how guilty you are. So he's going to start with Israel's guilt so that he can build to the glorious promises of a faithful, gracious God. The end result being that it can only be grace, 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 because it can't possibly be what the people did. Because all they did was wrong. All they did was sin. All they did was stir up God's ire. And so God says, listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons, I have reared up. God takes it personally. These are my children. That's why he refers to them as the children of Israel. He doesn't say they're the second cousins of Israel. They're the next door neighbors that make up Israel. He doesn't say they're some distant relatives. They are his sons and daughters. 
for sons I have reared up and brought up, but they have revolted against me. Brute beasts, like an ox knows its owner. Animals understand who it is that feeds them. An ox understands who it is that is about to put the yoke on them. And they bow their head and take the yoke because they understand who their master is. Oxen know enough to do that. And a donkey, and I think we can all agree that donkeys are not particularly bright or erudite creatures. Donkeys are stubborn, braying, stiff-necked. And he says, the donkey knows its master's manger. He knows where the food is. He knows where the straw is. He knows where he sleeps. He knows how to get there. And all that stubbornness goes away when he gets to go to the manger that belongs to his master. Israel, on the other hand, Israel does not know. So brute beasts, oxen know their master. Donkeys know their master. Israel does not know their master. God himself is their master, and they don't know him. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly, they have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel They have turned away from him. Any one of those three statements would have been enough to convict them and hold them guilty. But God lists all three. They act, their actions are corrupt, and they've gone away from God. They've abandoned him. It's not that they didn't know him. They knew him, and then they abandoned him, and then they hated him. They despised him. They wouldn't have that law because it belongs to the Holy One of Israel. And they were tired of trying to keep the Holy Law. So they abandoned. They hated. They despised. They were corrupt. So verse 5 says, where will you be stricken again? I think the reason for that question is he is about to say, You are already stricken in so many ways. You are already so sick, so corrupt, so depraved all the way through. What else can I do to you? You're already as bad as it gets. Here's what he says. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it, nothing whole, nothing healthy in the whole of the body of Israel. There is only bruises and welts and raw wounds, seeping sores. That's what you are when I look at you. And those seeping sores were not pressed out. Nobody has pressed them to take the the ooze and the gunk out of them. They weren't pressed out, and they weren't bandaged, and they weren't softened with oil. That's the state of Israel, sick from head to toe. God looks at them and says, you're like open, weeping, running, pussy sores. 
That's what I see in you. Bruises, welts, raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. Okay, so that's kind of the introduction to the book of Isaiah as God begins to make his case, but let me draw the first connection for you. Because when we get to Isaiah 53, God is going to offer the resolution to their problem, which is obviously that God is going to kill his son, and that is why Isaiah uses the particular phrase, by his stripes we are healed. Because here's the sickness. They are sick nationally. They are sick spiritually. And they are going to be healed nationally and spiritually by the stripes of Jesus Christ. He is their Messiah. And as a result of, of the restoration work that Christ does, that then justifies God continuing in the very promises that he made to Moses and David. So he made promises to Moses and David, and then Israel sinned against God so bad that God would say, you are putrid. And then God is the one who solves their sickness by sending his son to die. He is their Messiah first and foremost, and then we Gentiles get to enter into the finished work of Christ, but never think that our entrance into that deliverance in any way eliminates the deliverance that belonged to Israel always has always will and that is why Isaiah would say it is the stripes of Christ that healed Israel by his stripes with his stripes we are healed Amen. you got that connection because we're going to see lots of those kind of connections as we go through this book but you also got to have a proper Israelology to see it that way. You also have to have a proper view of Israel. If you think that God is done with national Israel, then you have to read Isaiah 1 and then completely separate it from Isaiah 53. And you can't see that connection. But that connection is just as obvious as it can be. All right? Do you feel like that was an adequate introduction to the book? Yes. Then in keeping with Conrad's direction, everyone go home this week and read it, and when you come here next week, tell me what you think about it. So. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.